Hey, what's going on? It's at The Letters, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Today is Thursday, July 8th. My name is Arden Swelling, and our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Uh, ben Nixon-Smith off this week, so I have gone ahead and got the next best thing. Uh, our Sportsnet colleague, Shai Davidi, is going to join me in the first block just to talk about everything that's going on with the Toronto Blue Jays as they approach a pretty busy three weeks here with, with the draft, a potential move to Toronto, which we're going to talk about, and some seriously interesting roster decisions as well that we're going to break down. And then in the second half of the podcast, I have MLB Pipeline's Jim Callis coming on uh, to talk about the draft and what the Blue Jays might do uh, this Sunday and then uh, Monday and Tuesday as well as the draft uh, takes place over three days. And uh, just, yeah, how the Blue Jays are thinking about, you know, the 19th pick in the first round and then not having a second round pick. Pretty small bonus pool. Some of the uh, interesting decisions that lie ahead for the Blue Jays as they try to replenish the minor league system with another crop of young players. So I'll be in the second half, but coming up will be Sportsnet's own Shai Davidi. Shai, thanks so much for hopping back on ATL. It occurred to me the other day that the Blue Jays have like kind of an insanely busy month right now, or I guess three weeks left in this month. Like when you think about everything that's going on, you got the draft this Sunday, and obviously like it's a deeper draft this year, so it requires more resources. You've got the trade deadline in three weeks, and the Blue Jays are clearly buyers and looking to add to this club. So you've got constant communication with, with other teams and trying to assess that. You've got a potential move from Buffalo to Toronto, which has to be organized and coordinated, and you know players and families have to be communicated with. And I mean, all kinds of things have to happen with that. And then, oh, by the way, you also have like MLB games every night and you have roster decisions and IL moves and Trent Thornton's going to Buffalo and we got to help him find the zone and all these things occurring in the next three weeks. I mean, how do you think the Blue Jays are kind of thinking about where to deploy resources and how to kind of prioritize things and and just how different this, this team situation could look three weeks from now? Well, it's kind of amazing that, you know, within all that, they even managed to pull off a very rare pre-draft week trade when yeah. getting Trevor Richards, right? Like that's not something that's, that you see too often. So look, I think the, the calendar dictates to a large degree how you play things out, right? And, you know, the, the baseball ops isn't dealing too much with the potential move. You know, they've got the draft, you focus in on that. And like a lot of the trade deadline work, a lot of that groundwork's already in place, right? Like you've got an idea of who might move what and what are the circumstances and what are the potential asks are might be. And then it's just playing that out down to the deadline to a point where it gets to a, a price that you're comfortable with. So, you know, I, I think that stuff in a sense almost figures itself out, you know, like the, the amateur scouting guys and, you know, Shane Farrell, the amateur scouting director, he's going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of signing, you know, the GM typically gets involved with the first round or things like that. But, uh, you know, I think for the most part, Ross is going to be able to, once the draft is taken place, he'll be able to lock in on the trade market. And at that point, you know, and Mark Shapiro and the, and the business side staff is dealing with the, the government on the potential move. So we do have a trade, as as you mentioned, that we should uh, talk about. Trevor Richards and uh, Bowden Francis, pitching prospect, coming to Toronto in exchange for Rowdy Tellez, who heads to Milwaukee. And Shai, I almost like, think about this trade like in tandem with the Adam Simber 
trade. Um, and when you kind of lump them together, you know, you think about it, the Blue Jays give up Rowdy Tellez, Joe Panic, and Andrew McKinvale, kind of a, a lottery ticket, low-level prospect. They bring back Adam Simber and Trevor Richards for their bullpen, Bowden Francis to your AAA rotation depth, and then Corey Dickerson, who upgrades on Rowdy Tellez in a way as a left-handed bench bat, although Dickerson is, is hurt right now. So like when you look at it, you've improved your bullpen, you've upgraded on your bench bat, and you've paid very little price to do so. You've only really added $1 million in payroll. So I know this is nothing mind-blowing, and it's not like dramatic impact, but it is pretty sort of clean and, and crisp business uh, conducted here. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a template, I would say, that you know that we've seen the front office use where you know they're protecting their prospect capital, the guys that they really covet. And then they're using find they're they're finding surplus or finding opportunities or finding ways to use money as opposed to having to give up anything that may impact your longer term ability to replenish the big league roster. So uh, you're right. It's really a clever, uh, a series of clever pieces of business. And what they've done, you know, they, they've really raised the floor of that bullpen. You didn't mention it, but, you know, a couple of weeks back, just picking up Jacob Barnes, too. It's a really minor move, but, you know, he's been better. You know, he's, you know, a better Joel Piamps, right? And it, it's not sexy. It doesn't jump off the page. But if he's your fifth or sixth reliever, you know, that that's an upgrade there. So, uh, you know, these little things have, have given Charlie Montoya a little bit more depth to work with. Uh, I'm sure that he appreciates it because it, it's got to be hard managing a week's worth of games and trying to figure out just the right times to use Tim Meza and Jordan Romano because those are the two guys that you trust right now. But look, the, it's going to be tougher for them to raise the ceiling. And at that point, we're going to have to see them delve into some of their prospect capital. And I'm really curious to see how far they go this year and i don't think they're going to go too far it's interesting to me right because yeah you're right these two moves like they are very indicative of what this front office likes to do like it's extremely low risk and with that comes pretty limited reward as well and when you look at where the blue jays are right now third place in in the american league east looking up at at the rays and the red Sox, the highest run differential in the american league east for what that's worth so that sort of suggests they should be doing better than they are to this point but i'm kind of yeah i am curious to hear even just your thoughts on whether you think it's possible for this club to meaningfully improve its current position in the standings and outplay its results so far without making a trade that's more risky in terms of what you give up and and also, you know, more impactful than in terms of what you get. Like, can this club really make a push over the second half without making a bigger move than sort of the, the Trevor Richards's and, and Jacob Barnes's of this world? So let's look at right now, let, let's just look at the Red Sox and the Blue Jays, right? And the Red Sox are outperforming their expected record and the Blue Jays are underperforming their expected record. Why is that? You could look at the Red Sox bullpen and say it's been a little bit deeper than what the Blue Jays have had, especially uh, once the injuries hit the bullpen. And, you know, I think both of us off the top of our head could identify, you know, 10 games where some better relief work would have swung it. And even if you win half of those, how different of a conversation are we having right now? So, you know, I think for those reasons, you look at it and say, all right, this team should be better than it is and is better than it is and is being undermined 
by the inconsistencies of some bullpen work. You know, occasionally it's it's fallen on the defense as well. A couple times, you know, there there's has been execution at the plate. But by and large, that's the the most easily addressable area to upgrade and, and repair this team. So I think from that vantage point, your need is clear and your opportunity is relatively clear. Now, not to sort of go to 10,000 feet on this, but I think if you look at the Chicago Cubs, right, this is an example that the Blue Jays would look at and say, okay, cautionary tale. You think about four or five years ago, let's go five years ago when they made the Araldus Chapman deal. They've right. got a big farm system. They're, they look to be in great shape. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, they swing a couple moves. They traded a couple key prospects. Glaber Torres goes to, to the Yankees. Eloy Jimenez ends up going to, to the White Sox. And now your core is coming eligible for free agency. You have to make a decision and you don't have any players in your system to replenish. So if you're the Blue Jays, you know, it's great that you've got Bo and you've got Vlad and you've got Teoscar and, and Guriel and you've got this great young core, but you're thinking about where are we three or four years down the road? And that's when you're going to need Jordan Groshans and Austin Martin and Aralvis Martinez and some of these younger players to come up and help replenish so that when they're either, you know, declining or departing via free agency, potentially, you've got the next wave. And that's why I don't see the Blue Jays touching those players because they're already thinking about what that next core is going to be and how they're going to replenish that. And so can you make a deal for a Craig Kimbrell or a Richard Rodriguez or whoever you want to identify without touching those guys? I don't know. And I think that's going to be the challenge. Right. And that would make it, you know, seem somewhat unlikely, I would say, for a guy like Kimbrell, although, you know, I don't know, it's kind of depends, you know, it remains to be seen how he's kind of valued at the deadline when you look at the the dip in performance that he had a year or two ago and, and his age as well. But also, I mean, the guy's been lights out this year, like he's been electric and the velos been back curveballs working I mean, think about even like if the blue jays want to go out and try to get like a controllable starter or something or like somebody from the kind of the jose barrios range or you know if you're looking to upgrade at third base with an eduardo escobar or or an adam frazier like i don't know that you can do that without tapping into your top 10 prospects like i think that's going to be a pretty difficult needle for the blue jays to thread yeah definitely but look i, I think this is where in part your own internal evaluations have to do the job for you, right? You have to know these are the guys who we absolutely have to keep. And these are the guys who other teams may value at a higher rate than we do. And you better be right on that, right? And I think that that was, you know, one thing that Alex Anthopoulos did well for the most part is that you look at, you know, and I know a lot gets made of the buildup in 2015 and all the prospects that he gave up and you know, it certainly did strip some of the depth in the farm system, but how many of those guys are ch- are changing your fortune right now? Like how many of those guys are you worried about surrendering and having hurt you? So, you know, the Blue Jays are definitely not going to go to that extent, you know, that type of sell-off. But if you can pick out two or three guys that you can part with, and then, you know, you think about some of your prospect surplus, you know, guys who are rule five eligible that you know, probably aren't making it or are going to be in tight to get on your 40 man roster. That's a currency that you can use that's not stripping away from, you know, really from your long term future. 
Yeah, there was probably a take at the time of, oh, you gave up Daniel Norris? Like, oh, my Jeff Hoffman? Mm-hmm. Like, this guy's going to be a stud. Uh, and, right. and we look at where those guys have ended up now. Right. So, yeah. Miguel Castro, Franklin Barreto. I, I know people who are crushed about Franklin Barreto, right? Um, it just a, a lot of these guys, the majority of them, have washed out. And it's funny because maybe the one guy who you weren't worried about that much at the time, who's turned out to be better than most is uh, Matthew Boyd, right? Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's he's had some good seasons. But again, you know, he's not preventing, you know, 17, 18, 19 from happening. Kendall Graveman as well. It took him a while, but comes around to be a pretty useful bullpen piece in the end. So it'll be interesting. The other big topic I want to touch on with you, Shai, is, uh, you know, the potential move to Toronto at some point in the next three, four, five, six weeks, we'll see as we understand it. And through your reporting at sportsnet.ca, we, we kind of know now the Blue Jays have submitted a, a proposal to all three levels of government that would see the, the club return to Toronto and play its games at Rogers Centre potentially as early as later this month on July 30th, August 20th is sort of the other date that you'd be looking at. You kind of look at when a, a homestand begins and those are kind of the dates that they're being targeted. And as I understand it, Shy, I mean, the, the fate of this is now essentially in the hands of the federal government. Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically where things stand. And the, the issue, of course, is the one that's been in existence throughout. It's how do you navigate the, the border issues? And I think that's the where... A lot of this hinges right now. And can the Blue Jays come up with a proposal that satisfies the need of both Public Health Canada and Immigration Canada is going to have a say in this too. Can they satisfy their concerns about the border crossings? And, you know, it's different. I know, you know, we look at it and say, okay, well, you know, the Montreal Canadiens and Vegas Golden Knights are in that series and Tampa Bay Lightning crisscrossed the border. And we're back and forth. What's the problem here? Well, this is more border crossings, teams coming from more different locations that have been in different parts of the United States with different vaccination rates. So that's going to factor in here. Uh, the other thing too is that you know the percentage of the Major League Baseball population of players, coaches, and staff that are vaccinated is going to be a factor in how you handle that. And so my sense is that the Blue Jays are pursuing some sort of dual course where fully vaccinated players and staff are treated like any other returning travelers and are eligible to be in the community. And the other parties who are unvaccinated would have to be in some sort of mini bubble or a cohort quarantine of some sort. Will that work? I don't know. And you know, I think those are some of the considerations that are at play. I don't think that there's an answer imminently this week. Although, of course, we could get news on this as soon as this, uh, this podcast event's published and negates what I just said. But uh, I think this is going to play out a little bit. I think Toronto FC gets an answer before the Toronto Blue Jays. And we'll see how things progress from there. Yeah, it's one of my biggest questions, Shai. It's just like how the Blue Jays have sort of accounted for the fact that they're going to have both fully vaccinated individuals and unvaccinated individuals entering you know, the country, both on the Blue Jays and on visiting teams as well, right? So like, we have to assume that means 
there will be a separate set of rules in terms of freedom of movement and like what you are and are not allowed to do for those two populations. And that raises like a whole host of questions for me of like what that means for the Blue Jays themselves and, and for their players and any divisiveness and fractures that could create what it means for visiting players as well, how they're going to feel about entering the country and, and being you know subject to some of these rules. Like, like I, I'm curious how you think the Blue Jays have sort of squared that off with their own players and also with the union when it comes to players and visiting teams. Cause I, like I have to assume that if the process has gotten this far and proposals are being made, then the Blue Jays have some sort of sign off from the various entities at play here about restricting what unvaccinated players can and cannot do when they're in Canada. And it just seems to me like that would not have been the easiest thing to negotiate. Well, yeah, for sure. But let's start from the Blue Jays' perspective. So we know that they are among the teams that are over 85%, right? or at or over 85%. So you're talking the vast majority of their population. So, you know, I would think that you know, whether some guys like it or not, you know, the rule plays for the majority. And I'm going to say this and try to be as respectful of Buffalo as possible because Buffalo has done a major solid for the Blue Jays, both the city and the the Bisons, you know, full credit to them. The Blue Jays definitely owe them a debt of gratitude. But I think this team wants to be in a major league ballpark, right? I think the t- this team wants to, you know, ideally, especially if Ontario continues to progress uh, on the path that we're on, you know, playing in front of their own fans and not a bunch of people who, as soon as the Yankees are in town, are, are like, yes, yeah, you Blue Jays suck. Let's go Yankees, right? <laughs> so yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the total package ends up, I think falling in the Blue Jays' favor, but the challenge becomes like, look, we know based on the latest data uh, released by Major League Baseball that seven of the thirty clubs are below eighty-five percent. We don't know which seven clubs those are, but if if some of those seven clubs are on the Blue Jays' schedule, you know that's going to make it a little bit more tough uh, for the government to approve. And you know, by how 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 much are they missing? You know, like uh, are they fifty percent? Are they sixty percent? We know the overall population in baseball is at 85%, just slightly over 85% vaccinated, according to the most recent data. So, you know, is that enough for the government to say, okay, we'll tolerate this? You know, I don't know that the NHL clubs that have been here were 100% vaccinated. I don't know that the Olympic qualifying basketball teams that were here were fully vaccinated. So, some exceptions have been made. There's some precedent, but this is a a little bit different than both those cases. Well, and MLB players undergo testing like every two to three days. Um, Like it's interesting. You can like, you can make an argument that like MLB players as a population pose less risk to Canada and public health than like actual just Torontonians walking around day to day because day to day Torontonians walking around do not get tested every two to three days. And Toronto's full vaccination rate is not over 85%. And even though, I mean, only 23 of 30 teams have gone vaccinated, like fully vaccinated over 85% across the league and league wide across the tier one individuals, it is over 85%. So like you were talking about a more fully vaccinated population that is being tested regularly that you're bringing in. So like, yeah, you can make the argument that they don't present that much of a risk to spreading COVID-19 through the Toronto community. But I suppose 
The flip side of that and the trouble is that there are just more variables and vectors in terms of their travel, right? Because like you mentioned hockey, we're not just talking about the Vegas Golden Knights coming from Vegas and going to Montreal and staying in a bubble and then going back to Vegas. Like on that July 30th date, you've got Kansas City coming in from Kansas City and then you've got Cleveland coming in from Chicago and then Boston's coming in from Detroit and they went to Detroit from Tampa so like while you're dealing with like a relatively safe population like it is one that's been exposed to like far more risk than uh you know kind of ordinary folks walking around Queen Street have right and that's why I've tried to look at this not from sort of our vantage point. I've tried to, as best as I can, get myself, try to get myself into the head of the government in terms of what are their considerations that we wouldn't be looking at. Because, you know, on the surface, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I just, yeah. you know, Major League Baseball hasn't had an outbreak since the beginning of last season with the, the Marlins and the Cardinals. Uh, anytime they've had uh, positive cases, they've managed to contain them since. The population has become increasingly vaccinated. Uh, they have had very, very few positives this year, I think their positivity rate is something along the lines of 0.03%, which is nonsensical, right? I mean, it's <laughs> essentially nothing. Like yeah. the odds are so low based on what we've seen to this point. But again, you know, we're invested in this. We want to see sports back in the city. We cover this. It's it's our livelihood. Obviously, you know, we're gonna we're gonna look at it in a different way than you know people who are epidemiolog- epidemiologically trained uh, and have an expertise of this and do this for a living. Uh, they're going to think about things that, that we're not going to. So, you know, I think on the surface, it would certainly look that way. I think the Blue Jays would certainly make the case that we've been discussing here about why they should be allowed to play here uh, and how little risk it would seem to pose to public health. Uh, but whether that's going to work, I don't know. You know, the sense that I have is that, you know, I think July 30th is tough for them right now. I think August 20th may be more likely. But, you know, if if things continue to trend the right way, and, you know, for all of our sakes, I hope they do, uh, because, you know, it's been enough. We're, we've been among the most restricted uh, places in the world, uh, especially given our, our rates and where they are. I think it would be a good piece of morale for sports fans in the city. I think it would be a good piece of morale for some businesses in the city uh, and certainly for the baseball club. Yep. Nice uh, positive talking point going into a possible fall election as well for our uh, federally <laughs> elected officials. Too. That couldn't um, possibly factor. No way that factors, <laughs> right? I guess like my last thing on this, Shy, like if you are an unvaccinated player, or if you're the Blue Jays and you're trying to, you're having to tell unvaccinated players, you're the union, you're having to tell unvaccinated players like, hey, when you go to Toronto, you can't leave the hotel. And if you're on the Blue Jays, you got your family with you. I mean, your family probably can't leave the hotel either. Like, I mean, it's just one of my biggest questions. I don't know that we have an answer to it, but it's just how they've kind of squared that with those players who are going to have to agree to some of these restrictions. I mean, if you're unvaccinated, your family may not be able to come with you, right? Yeah. And and that may be part of the challenge. Look, there, there's no easy answer to this. It's not perfect for everybody. But to me, the bigger picture question, and you know, we can sort of punt on it for now because it's not as big a concern for now. But this is something that's the you know the Leafs and the Raptors are going to have to resolve too. But if unvaccinated travelers aren't allowed into this country for an extended period, then, you know, what does that mean for next season? You know, what does that mean for how these teams are going to operate? Like, are teams going to have to come here 
leaving certain players behind? Are are the the Leafs, the Raptors, and Blue Jays going to have to play without certain guys? It's a current problem, but there's a a bigger problem, a longer term problem to this. And you know, there's I, I don't know the numbers comparatively baseball to other leagues. But there has been a certain portion of the baseball population has been very vaccine hesitant. I'm sure that population exists similarly in the NBA and the NHL too. How do you get across that line? I don't know. That's going to be tough. And that could be a problem that's sort of looming right now that we aren't really looking at yet. No, you just gave me a horrible forward vision of like, <laughs> yeah, 2022. And there's been another variant that is like cropped up that we had, you know, we don't even know about it yet. And it's, oh, now you actually are going to need a third shot. You're going to need a booster shot now in order to be protected from this variant. And uh, yeah, the MLB players don't have it. And the Blue Jays can't play in Toronto in 2022. Oh my God, should I? Well, I, I didn't mean to, I, you know, we had some positive talk before and here I come, you know, to like bring it all crashing down. Uh, that wasn't my intention. But I mean, this is a real public health issue, right? And it's something that all the sports teams are going to have to face. And look, I mean, it's not only the, the Blue Jays as a business, you know, like if your movie production company want to shoot up here, you know, like, can you bring in actors or, you know, uh, business people who want to come in who refuse to get vaccinated? Are you going to cut them off? Like this is, it's obviously a, a bigger problem than just for sports. Uh, it's obviously a, a societal line that we're going to have to come to terms with in some way, shape or form. But, you know, I think this is something that's on the horizon for the sports leagues and, you know, something that, you know, the Blue Jays could may be able to create some sort of temporary workaround right now, but it's something that's going to have to be resolved. I think the Leafs and the Raptors are going to be up on that first. Well, we will end on something light, and that is Keeping It Light presented by Miller Light. Something we do every week, Shy. I'm going to throw a question at you and, and see what you think about it. The Blue Jays' cashing situation is uh, getting healthy and getting kind of interesting when you think about, you know, Reese McGuire, who was on a little bit of a tear there, obviously earned his playing time while Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk were hurt. Danny Jansen now healthy, back with the club on the Major League roster. Riley Adams down at AAA. Alejandro Kirk 100% healthy. Per Charlie Montoyo, but staying at AAA for now on rehab assignment just to get at bats and to get regular playing time. It's interesting, Shy, uh, just how the Blue Jays are going to award playing time to this catching group going forward because a lot of guys that could stake their claim to it. So I'm curious, which Blue Jays catcher do you think will see the the bulk of playing time for the Blue Jays between now and the end of the season? This is a great question and. Uh, I don't want to give people in a history lesson that they may not want to hear, but I'm, I'm going to do it right now. And I apologize for that. All right. So I'm going to go back to the early 2000s and we'll look at the trajectory of catchers of the future and the difficulties the Blue Jays have had in that. All right. So we went from Kevin Cash to Robinson Diaz to Curtis Thigpen, J.P. Aaron Sebia. There was Yan Gomes, Travis Darno. And now we're into Danny Jansen, Reese McGuire, Alejandro Kirk, and down the line, Gabriel Moreno. Mm-hmm. It is really tough to identify the right guys. And of that group I just named, two have become all-stars. And both of those guys did not become all-stars with the Blue Jays, right. Ian Gomes and Travis Darno. So the challenge for the Blue Jays right now is in making sure they pick the right guy and making sure they get some value back 
out of the guys who aren't going to be part of the bigger picture. If we're casting forward three to four years, Mourinho is the guy who the Blue Jays want to be their number one. But for the time being, what do you do right now? Alejandro Kirk probably has the most trade value. And you know it's been discussed ad nauseum, is there some sort of Kirk for Richard Rodriguez package that you could build out or you know maybe Kirk for Kimbrell or something along those lines? That's interesting. You probably can't do that with Danny Jansen, probably can't do that with Reese McGuire. But can you take the offensive hit if you stick with those two guys and trade away Kirk? For the rest of this season, you know Riley Adams is in the mix too. You know how does he fit? This is a really pivotal decision that the Blue Jays have. It's been very difficult for them to groom and sustain a catcher of the future. Looking back at that that history, I think, like if I'm thinking about how the Blue Jays lineup is set up, maybe you want to go with Jansen and Reese McGuire for this year. But I think longer term, it's going to be hard to part with uh, Alejandro Kirk and that potential offensive upside. And it's going to be hard to wait for Gabriel Moreno for him to transition to the major leagues and acclimate at a time where you're trying to be competitive. So this is a a crucial, crucial decision for the Blue Jays. uh, And one I think has ramifications across the roster in a number of different ways. Yeah, there's a huge push-pull there, right? And it really does kind of hinge on Alejandro Kirk because like Kirk is the guy. So for me, if assuming all these catchers stay with the organization going forward and stay healthy, for me, I think Alejandro Kirk should see the bulk of playing time over the remainder of the season. Like I think he gives you the best option every day. You know, I, I think Reese McGuire is kind of, he's got a one-way ticket on the Babbitt Express, you know, back to his career norms. I think Danny Jansen is a big leaguer and deserves to be on this team, but offensively, he hasn't really earned like everyday playing time, right? And I think he's fine to have around to catch Hunjin Ryu and, you know, just to, you know, be the important, you know, part of kind of the, the culture almost of the team that he is. And I think that he will run into a home run every once in a while and work a good plate appearance. But I think Alejandro Kirk would be the guy who is like taking that four days a week role as the primary catcher. But Alejandro Kirk might be able to get you something tasty at the trade deadline too. And, you know, as the Blue Jays, maybe you can afford to kind of punt offensively at catcher a little bit, considering how deep your lineup runs one through eight most nights. I mean, most nights you've got like a, a Goria or a Grichik or a Biggio down in kind of the seven and eight spot. And at nine, like you can afford to not get that much offense out of your catcher as long as you're getting capable defense behind the plate. The pitching staff's being handled well and the game's being called the way you want them to and the running game's being controlled. And you can afford to kind of expend an Alejandro Kirk to get something back to address another area of the roster where you have a clear need. So like, I kind of see it both ways and they're like, I I agree with you. It's like a super interesting decision. The Blue Jays have to make over these next sort of three and a half weeks. It's just what to do with Alejandro Kirk. Yeah. I mean, you laid it out super well there. I think that those are all the considerations at play. I will say that Danny Jansen's offense is a real mystery to me because this is a guy who's hit and had a good approach and like, a lot of the conversations I have with player development people as he was coming up is that it wasn't just results. Like they were in love with his process and everything that he did in the batter's box. And that's why everyone was convinced it was going to translate. And I think that's why everybody's scratching their heads as to why it hasn't at the big league level. And like, he just doesn't look like the way that he did when he was coming up. 
at the plate, although he has looked better in recent weeks, week before, just before the injury. And uh, even in the limited sample past few days, you know, I thought that, you know, he looks a little bit more like himself, you know, that's the one, like if, if Danny Jansen's offense picks up and he starts going back to what he was in the minor leagues, then this is a very different conversation. And if you have enough faith that that's going to happen, uh, then that's a factor because of what he brings to you on a defensive level. But I also think the other challenge for the Blue Jays is that, you know, they put so much, and Aaron, you know this, you've done a lot of work on this, like the Blue Jays put so much on their catchers. And then to expect a young kid who's so relatively inexperienced the way Kirk is to handle all of that for a team that's chasing a division title with a lot of dudes who are super tough to catch on that staff, you know, I don't know that that's fair and that you're putting him in a, in a position to succeed. So that's going to hold true for Mourinho at some point too, right? Like, you know, for if the Blue Jays want to integrate him. So I think all those factors really play into this. And then, you know, the other piece that I'll throw in here is that, you know, the Blue Jays, you know, they, they, when their prospects get as close to the big leagues as, as they are now, and, you know, Kirk would fit in there, you know, the Blue Jays like to see what they are before they trade them away. And, you know, I think they, they may have a little bit of a glimpse at what Kirk is, but, you know, I don't, I don't think they really know. I don't think anybody really knows exactly. And I, I think the Blue Jays, to a certain degree, might have a tough time giving up what it might be, especially because they're not certain about, you know, what McGuire is and what Danny Jansen is. I guess the flip side of that would be the Blue Jays kind of made their bed with Alejandro Kirk, right? By rushing him up to the majors in 2020, hadn't played above high A, and then also like let him, he won a job out of spring training, right? And like put him on this roster out of spring training and DFA to Reese McGuire, who passed through waivers. So like the Blue Jays started that clock with Alejandro Kirk and they brought him to the big leagues and almost in a way like proved the concept because Alejandro Kirk was hitting big league pitching, right? And like spraying right. missiles all over the place. And like this year, I know he started slow in 2021. But he was like just rounding into form when he got hurt. Like he was just starting to pick it up and starting to actually kind of earn more playing time at that time than Danny Jansen was. So, it, it, like, yeah, you'd love to be as cautious as possible with Alejandro Kirk and like focus on the development, go down to the minors. He's never played AAA. Give him that, you know, exposure to that level. At the same time, it's like you. You brought him to the majors last year and all he did was rise to the occasion. So in a way, you've almost kind of got to lay in this bed that you've made with Alejandro Kirk, don't you? Yeah, I mean, like that path is there. But again, I mean, look, you could be as creative as you want to be. Like you could keep him at AAA, like hold on to him, wait for, you know, uh, Reese McGuire to either normalize or to become what he's going to be and, um, you know, ride that out and see what happens, right? Uh, Another factor too, I think, it's awkward for them to have uh, four catchers on the uh, five catchers, excuse me, on the forty-man roster right now. That's not good forty-man roster construction, right? So that's something that you would like to try to find a way to address too. So, like, there's a lot going on behind the plate. It is a, an obvious area of surplus, you know, even more so than the outfield. I know everybody's sort of fixated, like, okay, oh, yeah, you got to move Gurriel, you got to move Grichuk, and I don't think you can move Grichuk right now because you need. You need him, his ability to play center field on this roster, just in case. You know he's the one guy who you would trust. Like it's a, it's a very capable center field. So you know I think I think he stays on the roster for for that reason. Uh, but you know the catcher to me is the most glaring area, and it's the one that I think is in many ways the most difficult to figure out. So much going on with this organization over the next three weeks, Shy. You can throw catcher in there with the draft, the trade deadline, a possible move to Toronto. 
games every night, guys getting hurt, a bullpen that still needs help, starting rotation that could probably use a little bit of help as well, a third base spot where the Blue Jays have been getting below average production all year. I just think this club's going to look a lot different. This organization, right, this franchise, and you know the the next three weeks than than it does now. Uh, going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out. Shy, thanks so much for joining us. He's on Twitter at Shy Davidi, and uh, thanks, man. Good to talk to you. Yeah, pleasure as always, Arden. Our thanks again to Shai Davidi. Follow him on Twitter at Shai Davidi. Going to step away real quick, but when we come back, MLB Pipeline's Jim Callis will join us to talk all things Blue Jays draft related going into this weekend's MLB draft. Pleased to be joined now by Jim Callis, senior writer for MLB Pipeline for what is uh, an annual appearance on Ad Letters around draft time. So thank you so much for your time. Before we look at this year's draft, uh, I do want to ask you one question about last year's because obviously it was a pretty juicy one for for the Blue Jays. Um, you know, just looking back on the way things unfolded with with Baltimore taking Heston Kierstad and and Austin Martin dropping to the Blue Jays. I obviously were like a decade plus from being able to properly evaluate that draft, but with a year of information and and hindsight, do you feel any differently today about just how things played out and how things broke for the Blue Jays? No, I, I mean I kind of feel the same. I mean it's it's weird because we obviously have had less baseball played because there was no minor league ball last year. We finally got going a, with a, a month later than usual this year. But no, I, I still feel like they got you know the best pure hitter in last year's draft. They didn't see that one coming. I think we all kind of felt like, or at least I felt like the Blue Jays were going to wind up either taking Max Meyer, who went third to the Marlins, or Zach Veen, who went, I think it was ninth to the Rockies, eighth to the Rockies, and didn't really think Austin Martin was going to be on the board for him, and he's going to be in the Futures game this weekend. No big surprise there, and, and I think they're just thrilled to get I mean, like, you know, as we talked about, I, I think the only question with Austin Martin is where he winds up ultimately on the diamond. I, I don't think there's any question he's going to hit. And so when you were on last year, and, and we were talking about Austin Martin, and we were talking about last year's draft, um, obviously the chatter at the time was just kind of how that class would be impacted by the pandemic and, and baseball essentially being shut down. But I also remember, Jim, kind of coming away from that conversation thinking, oh, like the class is actually really going to be impacted by this. It's the 2021 class because you know he had no cape cod keat league last year and and you know he lost all these summer showcases and no national teams like is there a possibility where just because of everything that's happened over the last year we get a little bit of an unpredictable draft this weekend and maybe there are players going you know higher or, or lower than where the industry might expect just because there hasn't been as many looks at them yeah, no, I think that is possible. I mean, we, we talked about this last year, like you said, and I point out, like, the average fan was like, how can they draft players when nobody's playing? Everything got shut down. And I pointed out that really the important time for scouting is the summer. You get to see the college players in the Cape Cod League and all these other leagues with wood bats, best playing the best, and you didn't have that um, last summer. You, you did going, you did in 2019 going into 2020. So even though the college season got ended, you felt like you had a pretty good handle on a lot of the college guys. You know, for the high school guys, at least Arden, this last year, they did have a pretty normal showcase schedule. I mean, there were more COVID protocols in place, but they actually did a lot of the high school showcases, whereas the summer leagues were, were really kind of sporadic here and there and not a lot of the top players participated. So I do feel like teams don't have as much 
insight into the college class and how it works with wood bats that they normally would. And, and it's not a great college class this year either. Um, and I do think it'll be unpredictable. I mean, I, I feel like overall there's a tier of about eight or so players who are the top tier talent in this year's draft. Then there's another tier of about six or seven guys. And then in the back half of the first round, I just don't think there's any consensus. And, you know, I had one team that was picking the 20s tell me, you know, kind of, you know, don't laugh at our pick and we won't laugh at yours. I think on draft day, you know, not that I think teams draft for a list, but I think on draft day, you'll see in the first round, there might be some guys ranked in the 40s or 50s on some media lists who, who go in the 20s just because I, I just don't think there's a lot of consensus after the first 15 or so players in the draft. Do you think that clubs have maybe even gotten better at scouting or, or evaluating from afar or, you know, without as many up close looks as maybe they would be used to? Like, it's kind of the interesting thing about like a time like this, not even just in baseball, but across, you know, society is it typically kind of pushes innovation a little bit. And, you know, in a funny way, kind of like put moves things forward in terms of just how we conduct business. So like within baseball and evaluating amateur talent, like, do you think the clubs have kind of been forced to rethink how they utilize resources and how they do? things? Yeah, no, I think definitely. I mean, last year you had to do more video scouting really than ever before, you know, just because you had four weeks to see everybody. And it wasn't like they said, hey, you got four weeks and we're shutting down the season. It was, hey, we're, you know, kind of getting into the season and bam, it was over. And you had, I'm trying to think of the timetable. I think you had about three months between when things got shut down and the draft and you couldn't see guys play. You could maybe I, don't know. I know guys did workout videos, but that's not the same. And so I think, you know, there is more video scouting going on. I still think that while that's a component and maybe it helps you pick where you need to be or who you need to see or who you need to follow up on, it's not the same as scouting in a ballpark. You know, video scouting, you're limited to whatever angles you have. You know, in a ballpark, especially if I'm watching a pitcher, you could go, you know, sit down the line and see him from the side or sit behind home plate and see how the pitches move and, and, and do different things. And, it doesn't replace it, but I think it enhanced it. I mean, I, I do think teams probably are doing more, you know, Zoom meetings or whatever platform you want to use where it's like, hey, we don't necessarily have to fly everybody and have them all in the same room to have these meetings. I, I think they, they kind of streamlined some of that. Um, I still know they prefer to meet face-to-face with players, but, you know, I think this year there were still a lot of COVID protocols in place. You know, you, you got more Zoom meetings than you would have two years ago. I don't know if anybody was really Zoom meeting with players two years ago. So yeah, it definitely has led to some some adaptations. Do you think that the draft combine that MLB ran a couple of weeks ago, and I'm pretty sure you were there for it, like, do you think that that sort of replaced some of that? Do you think that helped teams kind of get even, you know, just kind of like that face-to-face interaction with the player to get to know the makeup and the character and, and things like that? Do you think the teams found that useful and that can, can kind of continue to evolve as, as time goes on? Yeah, I mean, this was the first combine, and I think it'll continue to grow and, and get better. And it was run really well. The players had a good time. You know, in talking to teams, what you said, Arden, was exactly right. They got more value, I think, out of being able to sit down with players face-to-face. It wasn't the longest meetings, although you could theoretically set up longer meetings, you know, going forward after the combine. But with all the COVID protocols this year, you just didn't get to, to meet with players face-to-face in person as much as you did in the past. A lot of that stuff was limited. I mean, from an on-field standpoint, I mean, it, it was nice seeing guys take BP or take infield, and they had some high school games or some, like, mid-level high school players. But you've scouted most of those players for a year, or the college players, you've scouted for four months. So I don't know, like, seeing Judd Fabian take batting practice again. Like, he was probably the best college player who took BP there. And, like, 
we knew Judd Fabian could hit the ball out of the park in batting practice. And, you know, he has some swing and miss issues and that didn't really answer that, but like being able to sit down and talk with Judd Fabian face to face and maybe ask him, Hey, you know, you struggled at times during the season. You know, what do you think you need to do? What do you think you did? How those adjustments work out? But the, the teams like, I think, well, I, I don't even think I know, but just from talking to him, they really valued being able to, to sit down. There were, I don't know what the final official count was. It was around 170 players. And, and obviously every team did not meet with every player. That would have been a little bit much legit. Logistically, but the teams did get a lot of value out of that. And it'll be interesting to see how that event evolves going forward. So you mentioned that there's kind of a clear top eight to this draft. And then, you know, we might see some some interesting stuff happen beyond that. Um, and I'm kind of curious if, you know, in your opinion, you think this is a deeper class than normal, you know, even like beyond that top eight. Like I'm kind of thinking about, you know, only five rounds last year, a little bit of a double cohort effect. Like, do you think there's actually some scouting directors who are pretty excited to get to day two and day three and try to, you know, mine some of that that talent that they could get in in the middle rounds as opposed to just to the top of the draft? Yeah, I mean, I thought that might have been the case coming into the year, and I, I don't necessarily feel that way now. Like, like the college performances, and I don't know if it's just because guys lost seasons and then really, a lot of them didn't get to play during the summer, were really uneven in a lot of cases. I mean, look, I mean, there were players who emerged that we didn't know about coming into the year, and there were players we thought were going to be good who, who weren't. So on one hand, I don't feel like it's especially deep. And, and like I would have thought, just from what you were saying, you know, you had essentially the players who would have gone around 6 or 20 last year, Almost none of them signed. You, know, you could sign as a free agent for $20,000 and maybe a handful of did. So almost all those guys went back and then you're in a draft where all the guys who would have gone 6 to 20 this year. So theoretically, you should have all this talent. But it's – I don't think it's especially deep. I, I think there's more talent because guys went back. There's some interesting – 23, even in some cases, 24-year-old guys who aren't, you know, going to be, you know, second-round picks. But, like, Kevin Copps was the best pitcher in college baseball this year at Arkansas, and he's 24, and he's in his sixth year at Arkansas. <laughs> but, like, he's pretty good for yeah. a discount guy. And Tanner Allen, we saw win the World Series, College World Series at Mississippi State, and, and he can really hit. And even though he's eligible for the draft, he's 23, and this is third year in a row he's eligible, he, he might go in the third round. So I think there's some depth with those guys. But it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I, 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 you know, it just feels like it's it's just kind of an okay draft, I think. So if we can zoom in on the uh, the Blue Jays a little bit and how they might approach those circumstances, because they're in a bit of an interesting spot, picking towards the back half of the first round, number nineteen, and then they forfeited their second round pick for signing George Springer. So it's oh, that's right. right? Yeah. There's going to be about seventy odd picks between the Blue Jays' first pick and their next one in the third round. I believe it goes nineteen, and then they don't pick again until ninety one. And they're also operating with the third lowest bonus pool of any team um, because they don't have that second round slot money. So what type of strategy do you think the Blue Jays, you know, might take here? Or or do you think they'll look to do anything different or interesting or creative just considering some of the sort of unique circumstances they're dealing with in this draft? Yeah, well, there's kind of three ways you can play it. And for your listeners, you you have a bonus pool that's based on where your picks fall in the first 10 rounds. I mean, you can theoretically spend whatever you want. But if you go more than 5% over the pool, you start losing draft picks in the future. And nobody's ever gone over 5%. Like This rule's been in place since 2012. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to do it unless there's something weird happens where you a deal falls through with a guy, but you're compelled to complete the deal for whatever reason, and you screw up your bonus pool. But So anyway, nobody's going to go over the bonus pool. And so the Blue Jays, there's three things you can do. You can do option number one, which would just be to kind of take, I would say best player available who's not going to command, you know, like, like an overslot bonus. Like basically the guy who'll sign for that pick value every pick and just take normal guys kind of each round. 
Or you could do what the Red Sox did. The Red Sox were kind of in a similar position to the Blue Jays last year where they picked, I think it was 17th. They didn't have a second-round pick because of sign stealing. And they had a third-round pick. And what they did is there was a guy they really, really liked in Nick York, who was the surprise pick of the first round, who they they thought was a really good hitter, who had been underscouted because he'd been hurt as a junior, and then there was COVID as a senior. And they really liked him, didn't think he was going to get to the third round. So they took him the first round, saved a million dollars, and then basically gave that million dollars to a third-round pick and made him kind of a top-of-the-second-round type talent. So you could do that. You could take money from the first-round pick and and give it to, say, your third-rounder. Or you could take a normal first-round pick. You could go over slot and pay more for a third-round guy who fell to you. And Blue Jays fans who followed the draft, the first draft the Blue Jays did this more than anybody, because I think they took, and the years run together, I think they took Anthony Alford in about the third or fourth round. And then from rounds five through 10, they just took college seniors and signed for like $5,000. And that's how they saved the money to pay the guys they took up top. So you could kind of do those, those three things. It gets weird because it's with this extra time, like it's teams have been just kind of in limbo waiting for the draft. And so I like, we still don't really know who's going to go at the very top of the draft. So it's hard to figure out how it's going to snowball down. But the so 19, you know, when you're trying to project who's going to go in the draft, there's some guesswork involved because you're not going to know who's going 1 through 18 necessarily. And like I said, I could probably guess, you know, 14 guys will be off the board, 14 or 15, but you still don't know. But anyway, long way of saying for the Blue Jays, the names we have heard have been guys who fit at pick 19. Now, that said, if they were going to go the Nick York route and, and shock us, by moving a guy way up. Like, like, I'll just make this. I'm not sure. saying like, you know, Calvin Ziegler is this really intriguing Canadian prospect. If they were going to take Calvin Ziegler at a discount at 19, they'd probably be keeping that really quiet right now too. <laughs> but, but I've, for the most part, just heard they're taking, you know, guys who are going to belong in the first round. And some of the names that I've seen on various mocks have been guys like, you know, Anthony Solomedo, um, you know, Andrew Painter and Jay Allen, you know, the catchers, Harry Ford and Joe Mack. And like, you know, it's impossible for me to sit here and ask you to predict how the draft's going to break for teams selecting 19th. But do those names sound plausible to you? Like, are those the sort of names you're hearing around that range? Yeah, I've heard all those names. I think I've given them Salamito in my last couple of mock drafts. Like some teams think he's the best lefty in the draft. I, I've heard all those. I've heard um, there, there's a, a shortstop at Eastern Illinois named Trey Sweeney, who's considered one of the better hitters in the draft. He might come with a little bit of a deal. Like he's got interest in the first round, so it's not like he'd be a deep discount, but he might be a guy that you value there. You'd have to take there to get him. You know, if you don't, he's probably going to go in the 20s and maybe save a little bit of money. I've heard you know, Will Bednar, who you know was the hero of the College World Series, although he might not get to 19. And all the names you mentioned are, are guys who have a pretty good chance to be there at, at 19. Like I don't, I don't think I had any of them going ahead of the Blue Jays in my last draft. And you're also kind of hoping, I think, when you're picking at 19. So there's like the second tier of players that I mentioned, and. You know, Benny Montgomery's a high school player. I don't think he'll get the 19, but the college guys, you know, you, you the, the second tier college bats, which would be Sal Frelick of Boston College, Colton Kowser, Sam Houston. They're both center fielders. Um, Matt McClain, a shortstop from UCLA. And then the college pitchers, you know, Ty Madden from Texas, Will Bednar from Mississippi State, Sam Bachman from Miami, the lefty Jordan Wicks from Kansas State. And so, like, I'm not saying that they would definitely take one of those guys but like if you're the Blue Jays you're kind of hoping there may be a guy in there that they don't like but you're made you're kind of hoping that that one of those guys gets to you like to me the best case scenario would probably be somebody like Ty Madden from Texas I keep getting told he might be slipping a little bit nobody can really say why and he's got a good combination of stuff and polish and and had a good season in Texas you know I don't know how realistic it is but like it could happen like the best case scenario that might actually happen at 19. 
Another interesting wrinkle is that this is uh, just Shane Farrell's second year as Blue Jays amateur scouting director. Um, and last year, he only made five picks. And the first pick was yep. essentially made for him when Austin Martin materialized right, yeah. at number five. So, like, I don't know how much there really is to glean from that draft or to even carry forward and think, oh, this is, you know, how he likes to do things. This is what the Blue Jays are looking for. Uh, but I'll put the unfair question to you. Like, do you think you've kind of learned anything about how the Blue Jays strategize <laughs> or approach the draft under Farrell that, that could inform how things might go this weekend? No, I mean, like you said, it was only five rounds. And, and the circumstances were so unique, too, that I don't think you can really read anything into that. Like, I know, too, like, when you're doing a mock draft and you're doing the back half of it, you try to look for a trend. Even if it's not going to happen, you could say, like, oh, the Blue Jays like to do this, and this yeah. guy fits that mold. But, like, I, don't, I just don't think we know enough about him to, to really do that. Like, I think if uh, somebody really good falls in his lap, Shane Farrell will gladly pounce on him is about <laughs> all, we, all, we, all, we can, all we can really tell from last year. I do know philosophically for the Blue Jays, and this isn't just um, amateur draft, this is internationally, this is like player acquisition in the big leagues, they like up the middle. Right. So, you know, catcher, shortstop, center field, because they, you know, they feel like they can, you know, move guys off of those positions. They'll have the athleticism to play another spot right. if that doesn't, if that doesn't work out for them. Um, and I've kind of read in a couple different places that maybe there's a bit of depth in this draft um, in terms of prep up the middle players like high schoolers who maybe could be tough signs but there could be an opportunity there if a club wants to get creative with its pool if you kind of have you been hearing similar things well yes and no i mean the best part of this draft you're talking about the top of the draft is high school shortstops there's four high school shortstops that could go in the first eight picks you know marcelo meyer from california jordan lawler from texas cleo watson from north carolina and brady house from georgia I think the depth falls off after those guys. I'm trying to th- like. There's some other good players. Not there aren't necessarily guys who fit at 19. I mean, and none of those guys will get close to 19. So, but it, but I agree with you. You know, up the middle. I mean, there's a lot of teams to do that. And and shoot, all the names we just rattled off, we're rattling off pitchers and center fielders and shortstops and catchers. So that's fairly traditional. I mean, you know, like if they took. Trey Sweeney out of Eastern Illinois. He's a shortstop. I think whoever takes him probably gives him the chance to play shortstop. I think most people probably believe he's really a third baseman long term. But like you said, I mean, the fact that he's playing short, you know, it gives you options. Like, so I, I could see that. But I don't, I mean, there's some interesting guys. Like, I, I haven't heard them mentioned. Like, the, the guy some people think might be the best hitter in the draft is, is a kid named Peyton Stovall from Louisiana, who's a shortstop, but he, he doesn't really have the actions and the quickness to play shortstop. So he's more of a second baseman. And he might go a little higher than any of us think, but I don't. I haven't heard him at 19 at all. I guess I'm also wondering if they could go safe in that first round with that 19th pick and kind of wait around for round three, round four, which would then be 91 and I guess 121 after that and try to take somebody with signability concerns who drops that far, like a high school player who just isn't, another team isn't willing to pay the bonus that it's going to take, but the Blue Jays save some money with that first pick and then try to scoop somebody up later. Yeah, no, you could. And, and, like, you can somewhat push guys to your later picks. Like, if, if they figure out, like, okay, this is how we're going to save money, whether it's with the first rounder or it's with rounds, you know, five through ten, we're going to go super cheap. And you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm just making up numbers. So we can go $2 million on our third pick. Well, you can tell, guy, like, if you have a target or multiple targets, hey, if he gets to whatever that pick is, we can give him $2 million. That guy's not going to probably take a million and a half from a team offering him that, you know, in the second round. So you can, you can have some luck sometimes getting guys to fall to your pick if you commit to, to paying them that number. So, so you could see that maybe. The, the, the problem is there really aren't that many safe guys. You know, like I said, you have that second tier of college guys, 
And then there's no consensus on who the next best college position player is. And even with the pitchers, it's the same thing. You know, like there's Gunnar Hoagland from Ole Miss is really interesting, but he had Tommy John surgery. He would have been, he would have been top 10 pick. And you know, like I don't, I haven't heard him with Toronto. It's weird. Like Tommy John surgery, you kind of consider like everybody comes back from that. And he was really polished. And I'm not saying he's going to be Walker Bueller, but, well, I could be like good stuff, but he stood out more, I think, just because he was polished when he was at Vanderbilt. And he had Tommy John surgery, and through the rehab process, he got stronger, and his stuff like gained about four miles an hour. All of a sudden, he was really, really good. And Gunnar Hoagland kind of has some similarities there. But that's the thing. Like, I just don't know, unless one of those second-tier college guys gets to 19, that there's technically a safe player you could take at 19. I mean, maybe Trey Sweeney. Like, like Trey Sweeney's got a really good bat. But he played at Eastern Illinois. You know, it wasn't a lot of top competition during the season. And it wasn't like, like you mentioned, it wasn't like Trey Sweeney got to play in the Cape last summer and showed everybody, hey, he went up there and he hit 320 with wood bats and we feel pretty good about him. I, I think everybody respects Trey Sweeney's bat and pretty much likes him. But you still, you would have felt better had you had that wood bat track record in the Cape League last summer to, to, to feel better about. Just hearing your description of Gunnar Hoagland, like immediately alarm bells went off in my head. Like, oh, so he's going to be a Tampa Bay Ray. Or he could, or everybody always talks about the the Nationals taking guys like that. I mean, I I do think the Yankees right behind the the Jays at 20 like him. So, yeah, we'll see. And and that's one, too, that's interesting because Gunnar Hoagland would have been a top 10 pick. And he's not going to get top 10 money, but I don't know if he comes at a disc, you know, like what his price point is. So does he really come at a discount if you're picking him 10 picks later? Or there's, I think there's enough demand, so maybe he doesn't have to take a discount. Like like how all that's going to play out. It'll be interesting to see. And usually... The teams that are looking to like, okay, we're going to take like, like there may be a team that is picking 16th that wants Gunnar Hoagland and, and, and they're going to lay low. Like you're not going to hear about it and Gunnar Hoagland's going to get picked and be like, ah, that's the team that was on him. So he, he's a little bit of a hard one to figure out. And just sticking on pitching to wrap up. Um, and obviously, you know, no modern organization is drafting for need. And I know the Blue Jays certainly don't, but this is an organization with a, a minor league system that leans pretty heavily towards position player talent. And there's a clear need to add some pitching um, to try to supplement what the Blue Jays already have position player wise in, in the majors. Um, would you say that this year's pitching class would be considered deep enough to the point where the Blue Jays could come away with some some interesting upside on day two? Or, or is this more of a top heavy group? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I answered your question before and you're talking about, you know, whether it's deep, you know, because we only had five rounds last year. And, and I was saying, you know, I don't think teams necessarily feel like, oh, my gosh, this is like super deep. But that said, like when you set up your draft list, well, I'll use ours as an example. So we have a draft top 250. And I'm not saying it's perfect. We It's a consensus. And, you know, you like guys on there. You know, we put it together. So, like, if we were picking in the Blue Jays spot, like, and where's their third round pick? Did you, I don't, you mentioned, I think. is it Third round 70s? pick would be 91. Yeah. So 91. 19, okay. the 91. Okay. So, so when they pick 90, 91st, let's say I'm the Blue Jays and I'm just using our MLB pipeline draft list. When I pick 91, there's probably going to be a guy I might have in the 40s on that list. Right. Like, like who's still available. Now, some of those guys will be high school guys who won't be signable, but there'll be, you know, college, there might be a college guy I have at 55. And I'm like, wow, this guy's here at 91. Like, and it's just, we like him better than than other teams do. And so I'll feel pretty good about that pick. <laughs> and then when I pick in the fourth round at, you know, round 121 or whatever, I might get the 72nd guy on my list. So when you get to day two, 
you know, and, you know, which in day one this year is just first 36 picks and they obviously don't have a second round pick. But when you get to the third, fourth, fifth rounds, you know, I mean, you're factoring signability, like who, who you can and can't sign, but you're basically getting the top guy on your board. And it's going to be a guy, like if I'm picking at 150, I'm probably getting a guy who's like 92nd on my board. And I'm like, wow, this guy's like a third round pick and we just got him in the fifth round. So yeah, I think you always feel like that. And then, you know, with pitchers, they're, they're, hard, they're hard to find. You can never have enough pitching, but you're always, I mean, there might be, a guy in the fifth round who throws 98, you know, maybe he doesn't, you know, throw a lot of strikes, but you think you can clean something up and get more out of him. Or there might be a guy who, who's got really good spin rates, but it's not efficient spin. And you think there's something you can do there. Like there's guys you can pick, like I'll, I'll throw out a, a Canadian for you, Eric Sarantola at Mississippi state, who wasn't even on their world's college world series roster. They did not take him to Omaha. He barely pitched after the first month of the season. But you know, if you see Eric Sarantola on the right day, he can hit 98 and he's got, you know, over 3,000 RPMs on his curveball, which is outstanding. It's not great spin efficiency. He doesn't throw a lot of strikes, and, and, and there's things that need to be fixed. But, like, and again, I don't know where he's going to go in the draft. He's a total wild card. But, like, I might, let's say I get Eric Sarantola in the sixth round. Like, I, I could legitimately say, hey, you know, Eric Sarantola had a chance to be a first round pick coming this year, and we just got him in the sixth round. Like, this is awesome. So, like, I, you know, it's funny. It's like, there's a longtime scouting director who told me, like one of his favorite expressions was like on draft day, there's 30 scouting directors telling 30 general managers they just had the best draft in baseball. <laughs> and then, and then you, you're going to be excited. So yeah, it's like you don't necessarily know how it's going to play out, but but you know, like the Blue Jays, even though they don't pick till 91, they still might get like four of the top hundred players according to them in the draft. You know, we I'd always love, I and mean, we'll, we never will. Like if if teams would say, hey, here's our draft board and show you who they got, type of thing. But then, you know, they might get five of their top 100 guys. Like, they're just maybe guys that they feel like, you know what, we did, we dug deep on this guy and we think there's something there that other people don't see. So, anyway, a long way of answering your question, Arden. But I do think, yeah, like, like you could come out with a pitch. Like, like I said, I mean, you aren't going to hit on all of them. But in every draft, there's going to be a guy in the eighth round who winds up being an all-star. There's going to be a guy in the 12th round who winds up being a regular for five or six years. You know, and, you know, you're hoping you're the team that's picking him. And we may not know who that guy is for five years down the road. But we'll look back on be like, you know, like everybody's – it's 10-year anniversary of the 2011 draft, which was one of the best drafts of all time. And people knew at the time. It, it, there hasn't been a draft as good since. And – Mookie Betts was a fifth-round pick, and Kyle Hendricks was an eighth-round pick, and Marcus Simeon was a sixth-round pick. You can always find guys. You know, as scouting directors will say, scouts will say, that's their job is to find those guys. So I think even though they don't have the pick, you know, you still have the opportunity to do a lot of damage. And, you know, and that's the thing, too. The draft, there's art to it and there's science to it, but, like, it's tough. You know, I have another one of my favorite scouting directors. He, one of his favorite expressions is, the draft is hard. He says it all the time. The draft is hard. And... You know, we're going to look back five years from now and, you know, typical draft, you know, there's 29 first round picks in this one. There'll be eight or nine of those players who are pretty good and there'll be 10 who are like, okay, they're big leaguers and there's going to be eight or nine of them who aren't any good at all. And it's not like it just flows down from the top that like, you know, there's going to be somebody who's picked in the top five picks probably who, who winds up not being good. So that's what I think. I mean, it's, for me at least makes a draft fascinating year after year is nobody's ever figured out. There's no formula. There's no algorithm where it's like, okay, we have a, B and C. Then it tells us this guy's the best player. It just doesn't work that way. And, and then you throw in just bad luck with injuries too. The draft is hard. So that, and that's why it fascinates me. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing for as hard as it is and what an imperfect science it is. It's endlessly fascinating when you think about, you know, the players that go later in rounds, the strategy that's involved. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, Bo Bichette, who I think 30 teams love to have Bo Bichette. I, I saw 
Bobichet at the uh, Baseball Factory does an annual All-Star game, usually at Wrigley Field, and I saw Bobichet there. I don't think he won the Home Run Derby, but he might have been. But anyway, watching the VP and the Home Run Derby in the game, his swing was jacked up. I mean, it was uphill, like a lot going on. I was like, and I think that's a concern teams had with Bo Bichette was like, man, there's a lot going on there with that swing. Is that going to work? And also, you know, I don't think he's really a shortstop. And, and so Bo, I think, was a second-round pick, right? And now if the draft were redrafted, Bo wouldn't last nearly as long as he did. I mean, I think Bo was what, like the, I don't have it in front of like 50th or 60th pick in the draft, something like that. It was down there. And you had real concerns about him. And He's proven those concerns moot. I mean, it's not necessarily the most picturesque swing, but like he can really hit and he makes it work. And that's one of those things you don't really know is going to play that way until you see him in the minor leagues and then you see him at the major leagues. And, and lo and behold, if the draft were done today, Bobby Show would be a probably top five pick. Well, and he was such a unique case as well in that he was telling teams that wanted to change his swing, don't draft me then because I don't want right. to change my swing. <laughs> well, that's, and that's the thing I don't get is that if you're, like and you do see it happen all the time. If you're going to take a guy high or invest a, a large bonus in him, I'm not saying, you know, hey, you just say, you know, go roll out there and do what you do. But like, you got to let the guy play for a while and see what he can do before you make changes. Like, if you're going to make changes, then why are you taking him? Especially with pitchers, pitchers even more so. Like, if you don't like a guy's delivery, well, if you alter the guy's delivery, you're going to might change his stuff. He might get hurt. You see that stuff happen all the time. Or you'll hear Andy like Zach Wheeler's a guy who sticks out to me. And the Giants do a great job of developing pitching. But they changed his delivery, and he struggled. And then he went back to what he did in high school, and he basically became Zach Wheeler. Like, it, like it was totally different. So, yeah, no, but, you, but you're right. I mean, that's the thing. Like like you said, Bo's like, don't take me. Don't change my swing. Um, I, I don't want to do that. And they're like, okay, well, we're not going to take that guy because there's no way he's going to hit like that. And you just don't know. I mean, I, I've seen, especially with pitchers, I've seen guys who look like they have – clean deliveries with no effort get hurt. And I've seen guys who have deliveries that look like there's not going to last. Like I'm just telling stories here now, but Max Scherzer, I remember Max Scherzer, different draft rules. in. he signed almost a year after the draft. He held out for about a year. So he went to the Arizona fall league to make up for lost time. And I saw him, I guess that was 2007 Arizona fall league, I think. In any case, whatever year it was, he had this really pronounced head whack. Like he would throw in his head would like whack his shoulder, like the worst head whack I've ever seen. And, and every scout I talked to said the same thing. Basically, it's a great arm. And you got to make that guy a reliever and get him to the big leagues right away because he's going to blow out in two years. There's no way he can hold up. And I don't think Max Scherzer's ever had an arm problem. I think he had a finger injury a couple of years ago. And he, I know he, like, bunted a ball and then hit him in the nose, <laughs> yeah. broke his nose. But I don't think Max Scherzer's ever had, like, any kind of arm, you know, arm problem that's landed him on the DL. Now, he has toned down his delivery, but it's still, like, you wouldn't look at Max Scherzer's delivery and say, hey, Kids, this is how you want to throw. This is like clean and smooth. But um, well, like nobody thought he was going to hold up. And I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. I do wonder if you know Bo being allowed to be himself in the Blue Jays player development system, them not changing him, and then also you know you're splashing around all these uh, you know photos of your new player development complex. And look at the gyms and the resources we're going to give you, right? I wonder if that does speak to players in the draft a little bit, and if they you know it might tell other teams, yeah, don't draft me. I want to be a Blue Jay or even past the first 20, right? You can still sign the guys that might have been going in round 25, 26, 27 in uh, prior years. You can sign them for, what? what is it, $20,000, I think, is the cap on those, right? So Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it helps maybe maybe something like that. I mean, honestly, like, like not a lot of guys have a lot of say in the draft. You know, even the most talented guys, 
you know, I always kind of refer to them as being prisoners of their own talent. Like you'll hear about some guy going to the top of the draft, like, oh, if he doesn't go in the top three, he's not signing for less than $7 million. And it's like, really? Like if you go seventh and you get offered five and a half, you're going to turn that down? That doesn't happen too often. And, you know, like, like it works a little bit, you know, when you kind of get to where at the bottom of the first round where the slots are about two and a half million and you have teams with extra picks are like, hey, if you get to us, we'll give you three and a half or three or whatever. And then you can throw that out. But it's a little tough to finesse. But but I do agree with your larger point, though, that I do think you look at how much success the Blue Jays have had developing players. You look at the opportunities they've been given in Toronto. That facility looks unbelievable. And it's funny because the last thing I did before the pandemic, I did not do a work trip between going to spring training in 2020 and then going to the combine this June, I didn't go. I didn't go anywhere for work. But my last day in, in spring training was in Dunedin, and I actually went over to minor league complex to interview Jordan Groshans real early in the morning. I was, I was talking to Gil Kim, who I still don't know how he does farm director and big league coach in the dugout. Crazy, every game. like he has, he has the energy of like more than two minutes. Yeah. That's how he pulls it off. But like so, because Gil was so busy, I actually met with him at six a.m. over at Dunedin, at the big league field. And then I had to go interview Jordan Groshans at 7.30 over at the minor league complex. And then I came back to talk to Nate Pearson. But I went over there and it was under construction. Yeah, you know, I was like, boy, that's like pretty extensive building going on around here. And then I saw the video, I think the Blue Jays put out this spring with the drone. And I was like, oh man, like how, if you're a player, like I, I agree with you, like like the Blue Jays would be an organization I would definitely want to play for. Yeah, no, I think a lot of that sort of you could even call it propaganda that they put out around that thing. Like it's you know you're you're messaging to fans um, and your own players in house as well, but I think you're messaging to amateurs, you know, for future players. Oh yeah, no, agree. Like like look, like if if you have your choice, like and like and you don't have that much of a choice, but like I remember interviewing Jordan. I think it was an area where they had like covered infields. So you could do like infield drills on days when it rains. And I was like, and, and they they were really nice. But like, I remember watching the, I think it was on their Twitter account where they had a drone flying around. And I was like, wow, okay. So this is, <laughs> this is what it looks like when it's completed. Yeah. There is a full infield that is covered. Yeah. Which I have, I mean, I, maybe that exists somewhere else. I had not seen that anywhere. Right. Um, I won't claim I've been to every, all 30 teams facilities at spring training, but it was pretty impressive. And it just kept, it seemed like it went on and on and on for miles. Like <laughs> anything you might want, we have the space, we will build it. So Yeah. No, and the Blue Jays certainly feel like it's the the best in baseball. So for for as much as, you know, that matters to to players in the draft, I mean, that is something they can they can look forward to. So it should be interesting to see what happens, man. Um, you know, at number nineteen. I mean, I know that for for guys like you, if you nail your first, I don't know, fifteen, you're probably feeling pretty good. And then beyond that, <laughs> that almost never happened. If you get your first, like this one's gonna be tough because I don't think we have great feel for what Pittsburgh or Texas are gonna do. We we know who they're looking at, but you kind of at some point in 2005, I got the first 18 picks right. Yeah, which and it was funny because I knew like I'd never come close to doing that again. I think I've got nine in a row is is the most I've had since then. But if you get your first three or four right, you're doing pretty good. And like last year. I got one right, and then Heston Kerstad went too. And once you start missing picks, they snowball because not only did I miss who the Orioles took, I missed where I had Heston Kerstad going. So, like, you're hoping at some point, like, you kind of catch back up, and then all the players are off the board, and maybe you get a little second run. But it's it's t- it's fun. Like I said, I enjoy that part of it too, trying to figure out who's going where. And that's why when I do my final mock or even my most recent ones, I'll try to throw out. Like for the Blue Jays picking 19th, I'll make a pick. But I'll throw out here's like four other names, just so if you're following along at home and Anthony Solomito goes ahead of him or whatever, you can you can come up with some other ideas. And it sounds like you might be expecting a little bit of unpredictability this year as as well, kind of like last season. 
No, I, I do. Like, like I said, I, I think once you pass the first 15, it's going to be unpredictable. And it, it's hard to see those discount picks coming because the teams are, are trying to keep those kind of quiet. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, Jim Callis is senior writer for MLB Pipeline. You get him on Twitter at Jim Callis MLB. And we thank him for his time, as always. Cheers, man. Hey, thank you. Great being here. All right. Our thanks to Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline and our thanks to Shai Davidi as well for joining in the first block. Uh, my thanks to our producers, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. And my thanks to all you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.